Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, as Russian attacks intensify, we get an inside look at what the city of Lviv looks like from Matthew Best, freelance journalist from the Globe and Mail, who is on location. Maru Public Opinion released a new survey that looked at the state of mental health in this country two years into COVID. How are Canadians managing? Or are we managing? And although the pandemic was an accelerant, labor shortages have plagued the hospitality industry for years. What does the restaurant industry need to do to confront this problem? It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We want to set the scene and talk about what's going on over there. Uh, and it's a grim picture, as I'm sure you've seen if you've been following the story over the last little while. Russian troops are advancing, slowly but advancing. The shelling is continuing in urban centers, despite the fact that the Russians are denying that they're going after civilian targets. Uh, it's uh, it's quite a scene to actually sit here and look at it. It's It's tearful actually to look at some of the pictures that we've seen over the last little while but uh, i want to talk to somebody who's right in the middle of it right now matthew best of course is a freelance journalist who's been on a program before you've seen his work in the globe and mail the ottawa citizen among many other publications and uh, he is uh, in lviv in ukraine right now and joins us here on the bill kelly show to bring us up to speed uh, matthew thank you so much on a, a busy day i'm glad you had some time for us today are you well I am uh, a little tired. I was uh, woken up by an air raid siren uh, alert this morning. Actually, it was a, a cell phone alert. They've modernized the air raid system, so we have an app for that here. And, and how do people respond to that? Is it is it an everyday occurrence of they're just looking at that now? It's only been a couple of weeks, but I mean, God, it seems to be happening on a daily basis now. It it's a, I mean, it's more or less on a fairly regular schedule for them. For the folks in Lviv here in Western Ukraine, um, they kind of go about their business. So some people head down to shelters. Um, most people just stay walking the streets. You hear horns honking and and such when you emerge. So people are out on the streets when this is happening. Now I asked uh, one of the hoteliers here where I'm staying how often it was. And he said, sometimes, you know, you can go a couple days without it. Um, sometimes it's every day or sometimes twice a day. Uh, sometimes they last for an hour, sometimes five hours. So it's sort of all over the place. And I don't know if people have become desensitized to it or if they feel that the war is far away, but the reaction to it is fairly split is in terms of people treating it as life goes on and people going down to the shelters. Are, are they trying to carry on as, as best they can with, with, with their everyday lives or is there this trepidation looking over their shoulders? It seems to be the stiff upper lip attitude, at least in Western Ukraine. When you walk down the street, you see people just chatting, taking pictures, seeing the sights as, as they do, because obviously there's a lot of uh, refugees here too, who've come from the East and they're going and, and seeing the cultural centers around here and taking a look at what's on the street. And intermixed with that are uh, Ukrainian military walking down the street with uh, Kalashnikovs slung over their shoulders, uh, just chit-chatting, having smokes. Um, it's a very surreal sight to see a place so heavily militarized with barricades and tank traps and soldiers all about where people just seem to be treating it like an everyday occurrence. But they're trying to get on with their lives until they hear those sirens. And, and as you say, I'm sure there are some people that are trying to seek shelter. Well, is, is, you talked about their, their attitude, the stiff upper lip, and, and it kind of takes me back. We mentioned, of course, that Zelensky is going to address the Canadian Parliament today and uh, the U.S. Congress tomorrow. Uh, his address to the, to the British Parliament last week, uh, where he seemed to be channeling Winston Churchill, uh, about, you know, we will fight on the beaches, we will fight in the streets, that, that sort of thing, and uh, seeming to indicate that, uh, that they're bringing with them the same spirit that the Brits did back in, uh, in the Blitz in 1940s, of course, when, when the Nazis were bombing Germany. 
or bombing London, that is. Do you get the same sense of, of purpose here that the, the Ukrainian people are simply saying, you know, we're, we're gonna, you're not going to scare us, you're not going to intimidate us? Absolutely. Um, absolutely. There's patriotic displays all over. You see the, uh, the blue and yellow flag uh, everywhere, the Ukrainian trident everywhere that you go, um, hanging from windows on cars, on people's clothing. As well, there's a lot of uh, Ukrainian expatriates coming back in. So I arrived by coach uh, from Poland. And when I came in, it was just full of Ukrainians who were from the UK or were living elsewhere in Europe, in Poland, who were coming back home to volunteer, whether that was for relief efforts to help the refugees or to go join uh, the frontline fighting or to join the Home Guard and allow the trained soldiers back in the West to move forward. Uh, it's kind of galvanized them all over the world. And you can see it in this nexus where people are coming in. They're not only leaving, but they're all coming in here as well. Talk to us about that. We've heard those stories, and, and you've read them as well, I'm sure. Uh, you know, athletes, ex-athletes, uh, people that have a higher profile on a global basis uh, that have said, I'm going back to defend my country. Others are, as you say, maybe not famous, but they're just as patriotic and moving in there. And I, I know that uh, President Zelensky is, is encouraging all males, I guess, between 18 and 60, to fight for their country. And it, it's astonishing to, to hear the stories about the number of people that are coming back. These aren't soldiers, Matthew, but they're going back there and, and willing and able, uh, or trying to be able anyway, I guess, to, to go right up there and take off arms and defend their country. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Uh, when I was coming in, um, like I said, I was on a coach. It was an overnight coach because uh, you have to get here sometime between 6 in the morning and 10 at night uh, to, to avoid the curfew. And so we, we were coming in at 2 in the morning, and I was just chatting uh, with some people on the bus at the back and it was a there was a fellow there said you know i have no military training i've lived in uh in britain for years and i'm coming back to fight and as we get to the border um we were obviously going through the border checkpoints and it's a very long process given the war um as we get to the ukrainian part of the border uh, the first the, U the Ukrainian uh, border guard comes on and takes all our passports and asks, you know, where we're from and, and what's our purpose in Ukraine. And after that, a gentleman came on who had our passports as well. Um, and he was going up. He had the passports of all the military age males, I should say. And he was going up to every single male finding their passport and saying, Legion, Legion, Legion. Are you here to join the Legion? Are you here to join the foreign fighters? Are you here to move to the front line? So there's this almost uh, organized effort to get people in and get them to where they're supposed to go and where they're going to best be suited. Now, of course, when he gets to me, I say no journalist, but um, most other people were saying, yeah, I'm, I'm coming in some capacity to fight or help. But these aren't soldiers. I, I, they're not trained in, in, in military protocols and things of this nature. How, how, how are they being moved into the service here? I mean, I'm guessing some of them probably haven't even picked up a weapon in their lives, uh, but, but are willing to do so now. Absolutely. Um, from what I've seen, it's uh, they move them, uh, I guess, where they most belong. Um, so folks who maybe want to help out but have no military training and don't really want to be set to the front might be brought to a refugee shelter to help distribute aid. Uh, folks who uh, maybe are younger and are more willing to fight might be asked to move to the uh, sort of territorial guard the, the militia so that they can garrison cities i suppose and garrison the rear while the more trained are moved towards the front um and the the effort to organize them is also an international effort there's many folks over here from america from 
Britain, from France, uh, who are trying to assist in training and taking the people who are capable of fighting and basically putting them through a uh, crash course boot camp on how to fight. It's uh, it's a remarkable story uh, just to, to see that, not just the level of patriotism, but people that are willing to, to put their lives on the line in situations like this. What was it like, the, the trip from the Polish border to Lviv eventually? Uh, is there concern? I mean, are the roadways clear? Are you Can you travel safely? I mean, because you've heard the stories, I'm sure, that, uh, that there's a lot of U.S. intelligence that suggests that the, uh, the Russians are planning on attacking those supply chains. Well, uh, I mean, the trip was safe. It was actually quite quick. Um, the Polish uh, part of the trip was no problem. We made a very good mm -hmm. time. And as we got into Ukraine, obviously, once we get through the border, uh, it's a little bit slower because there are, you know, fortifications on the side of the road. But you'll also sure. see people just biking right by them. You get into the city and it's like any other city. There's a big, you know, traffic jam. And there's, again, checkpoints everywhere and, and guards who ask where folks are going. But other than those kinds of snarls and slowdowns, it's relatively safe. Um, the thing to keep in mind as well is that Western Ukraine um, is this refugee corridor right now, especially coming out of Lviv and going into Poland. And we saw something like this uh, last year where uh, Belarusian President Lukashenko also sent many, many migrants to Poland. And there's a vibe uh, that people feel that, you know, anything is a weapon. And there's this sense that there's a sense of safety for the refugees because of the logistical and infrastructure crunch they're putting on Poland and thereby Europe and, and NATO as well. So there's this notion that the refugees are actually probably quite safe because they're being used to bog down Western efforts. What's the, the mood? I, I know you've only been there a short time, actually, in Lviv. You know, we, we know, we just mentioned earlier that Zelensky is going to be addressing the Canadian Parliament, he did the UK, uh, he did the European Union uh, Parliament, uh, the uh, the Congress. Uh, we already know the gist of what he's going to be asking for today to the Canadian Parliament, of course. They, they want the no-fly zone in, incorporated, uh, and they need more assistance, and they're talking about military aid. Uh, the answer has been no, and a pretty adamant no so far from, from NATO nations. Is there hope within the, the Ukrainian people that, that maybe that attitude is going to change? And do they do they still look to the West and to NATO for uh, some relief to, to come to their side and come to their aid? I wouldn't say they look to the West. I'd say they hope for the West. They, they really, there are people who look to themselves uh, first and foremost, and they'll take any assistance they can get. Um, but it's, there's a split attitude, I'd say that, you know, they definitely want it to come and they want as much assistance as they can get, but they're not holding their breath. They're going to keep doing what they're doing over here. They're grateful for anything they get. Um, I'm not sure if the political realities of the no-fly zone and the potential escalation of causing, you know, World War III has really sunk in, or if people who over here really are, are already kind of involved in World War III uh, even, you know, think that's an unfair ask for the rest of the world to jump in so those are the various kinds of chatter that that floats around and that i've heard so far well especially because of the resolve and i think it goes back to what you were mentioning earlier i mean even, even where you are in Lviv, i know the mayor was quoted the other day as saying look at if if we can get russian planes out of the sky we can hold our country uh that's a very optimistic view but it, i guess it, it speaks to the resolve of, of what the people are feeling right now. Uh, and the fact that, you know, they, they think that these people are going to be able to come to their aid. They're not giving up. And, and it's, it's remarkable to see, notwithstanding the fact that, as you've seen uh, from the other cities and starting to happen in the port city, of course, and of course now even in Kiev, 
you know, shelling in downtown areas. Uh, the apartment building that uh, was attacked uh, yesterday with a number of people that were dead as well. But it, it seems to make these people even more resolved as opposed to, you know, if, if in fact Putin is, is simply trying to, to, to get them to the point where they just say give up and we give up. I don't think that's going to happen. There are people of singular will. Um, that's the first thing you notice uh, as soon as you come here, that there is a singular, singular will that Ukraine is Ukrainian. And that, I mean, going back to the Churchill speech, there, there's no inch they won't fight over and there's nothing that they'll give up. If Putin does eventually take Ukraine, he'll take a vast ghost town because everyone will fight him to the end. And that much is clear the instant you talk to anybody here. I, I one of uh, Solinsky's former advisors, uh, who's been on a number of the American networks here, uh, drew a rather interesting analogy uh, about Ukrainians and their attitude and their willingness and, and their resolve. And uh, pulling a North American analogy, he says we're like John Wick. He says we're nice, quiet, loving people until we get pushed, and and then we're like John Wick. And I, it just, I think, I think that's something that resonates, uh, you know, with with people back here to say, oh, really? That's the kind of attitude that they're taking. But you, you juxtapose that with what Zelensky is saying right now, and you know, I'm sure you saw the interview we did last week with Sky News, and that where they repeated about the no-fly zone, and it could, as you mentioned, escalate into World War III. And he says, and and it could only increase the suffering. And he says, increase it how? He says, look at my country, the people that are dying on a daily basis. How many more Ukrainians are going to die? How many more cities are going to be destroyed? He's unshaken in his resolve, and so are the America or the the Ukrainian people in, in this area too. Is there a concern that that this is going to start to escalate? I mean, the, it can go one of two ways now because we've heard stories as well that the Russians are really starting to escalate and, and simply willing to tear down cities uh, to, to make their point here, uh, including, of course, where you are right now. Oh, absolutely. I mean, every time you talk to somebody, ask how they feel. Um, they'll always say here in Lviv, they'll always say, you know, it's safe. And then for now, that's always the caveat that's on their their mood is for now um and i think they've seen the kinds of escalations that have happened and realize you know that can be coming here um we did have the uh missile strike in uh at the international uh peacekeeping and security center that's a little it's actually closer to poland than it is to lviv but uh it's it's nearby enough and it's in the lviv oblast that you know people are feeling it people realize how far in here russia can reach um and how far they're willing to go for their goals and they're acutely aware that um, there's a civilian airport here that can be targeted as well and that might have strategic value to those kinds of strikes and uh that sort of just puts a, a bit of a punctuation mark on every time they say well you know I feel good or I feel safe, but for now. And and they know the stories. I, I know the mayor of uh, Izium uh, was 450 or 45,000 people, I guess, in that town. Uh, he says, no water, no light, no heat, food, and medicine. We can't even bury our dead. Uh, they know that's happening. It's happening not too far away from where you are right now. So there's a, a sense of reality, I guess, uh, that, that is there, notwithstanding their resolve to carry on. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so far, I'm told that there's been few interruptions. It's things are occasionally spotty, um, but they know what's going on. Um, they've, they, of course, uh, don't have that kind of Russian censored media here where the story is whatever the state makes up. They very much do know what's what's happening and what's incrementally moving closer. Uh, all the monuments here in Lviv are wrapped up. 
uh, to protect the cultural heritage of the city uh, because the statues obviously can't be carted to bomb shelters. Um, you know, there's a sense that sooner or later it's going to arrive here. Well, we we thank you so much. I know how busy you are uh, in, in a very, very tense situation. Uh, I really appreciate you spending some time with us. Please stay safe. Uh, it's it's a very incendiary situation there, uh, pun not intended at all. It's just terrible to watch some of the things that are going on. Uh, so do your job as you do so well all the time, and uh, hopefully we can hook up a little bit later on and get a further update on this. Thank you so much for this today, Matthew. Well, thank you for the time, Bill. Pleasure to be here. Take care. Matthew Best, freelance journalist who is uh, right now in downtown Lviv and uh, getting the uh, the sense that uh, they're trying, at least in some circles anyway, uh, to carry on with their lives. Fully cognizant of the fact that uh, that, that that sound they hear in the distance are uh, Russian shells that are lasting and landing in neighboring cities. Terrible situation. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. As the uh, sanctions against Russia and Russian oil uh, continue to sink in here, and we've seen the results, at least one of the results anyway, at the gas pumps right across North America, the conversation is starting to shift over, okay, what are we going to do about it now uh, to try to lessen the impact and uh, to make sure that uh, consumers aren't going to get winged for this thing for uh, the next little while. And there's an interesting public opinion poll that's out about that that I want to get to in just a couple of minutes. First of all, though, I want to talk about the mental health aspect of this because it's something that we have talked about and, and worried ourselves about. And, and if we've had conversations within our family, I'm sure the topic has come up more than once. There is a, a couple of, or are, are rather, a couple of studies I want to talk about. One is a study that was released in the U.S. this week that finds that children and teens have been steadily experiencing a significant increase in cases of anxiety and depression. Experts say the study proves that children's mental health should be treated as seriously as physical illnesses, such as asthma and obesity. Dr. Alak Patel is at Stanford Children's Health Center, explains why this is a cause for concern. Well, this report is telling us that heading into the pandemic, we already had a mental health crisis among youth, seeing about 30% increases in anxiety and depression. And this was before everything that happened in the last two years that only exacerbated mental illness in our adolescents. Well, let's talk about how it's exacerbated uh, mental health within it. And uh, to do that, we're so pleased to welcome back uh, John Wright, Executive Vice President of Maru Public Opinion, who have uh, done some polling on this and uh, come up with some rather startling results. Uh, John, uh, as always, thanks so much for the time. Great to have you with us once again. Good to be with you, Bill. You know, we've talked anecdotally, and I guess heard anecdotally from some uh, folks in the profession about the increase uh, in the strain of mental health. These numbers that you've come up here when you talk to Canadian adults, especially young Canadian adults, increases in, in, in suicide conversations, increases in mental health. Uh, some people not finally at this young age saying, I need help. Uh, a startling revelation. Yeah. You, you know what? I think you hit it, hit the nail on the head. We have conversations with neighbors. Uh, we know of cases where kids and uh, young adults, and that's really what this study is about, 18 to 34. Uh, and I count 34 as a young adult. Um, but just the impact of the of the pandemic on their mental health has been extraordinary. And I think what leapt out at me in these pages of data is that, first of all, this is real research. I mean, we call it polling, but it's a bigger sample size than most of the mental health providers um, do uh, when they're measuring people across the country. So we're able to dig down and look inside of these numbers. The gap between people who believe that, uh, you know, on average, they've had some troubles during the um, pandemic over the last two years is, is 
is is quite significant in itself. But when you look at that 18 to 34 grouping, there is, you know, the distance uh, in that those categories is as much as 16 points higher than the national average. So, you know, it, it shouldn't come as a great surprise that we've all had some kind of impact from this in a mental health perspective. But to see the numbers that big brings this home that the pressures put on young adults, whether they were working, whether they were at home looking after young kids, whether they've got mortgages, whether they had to uh, change jobs or forego income has had a huge impact on them compared to others who are, you know, relatively more stable working from home, perhaps have retirement incomes you know, all of those sort of things. So the, the impact has been very significant on young adults uh, during the last two years. And, and I know that some people will be dismissive and say, oh, come on, those the people in that age group, they're, they're resilient. They can roll with the punches. And, and I'm certainly that, yeah, they, they can, I suppose, to a certain extent. But as you say, when you see like a 16-point average above the national average of people that are actually say they're almost at the breaking point right now, that's a red flag. Well, it is a huge red flag. And I know people will say that, exactly what you do, you know, snap out of it, be resilient, get back on your feet because, you know, we're through this. Well, that often comes to people who are in a better position to say that, uh, you know, again, the, the cost of living that's rising as, a, as we come out of the pandemic exacerbates a lot of the circumstances that these young adults have had to deal with. Um, but, but we just can't underestimate not only the impact on, on the young adults in our society and the young kids who have gone through this, as we heard at the top of the show, but also the the difficulty in getting help or reaching out for help, even if you have the courage to reach out. Um, having access to a professional um, is worse than it was before the epidemic set in. But we have to make sure that people who are in dire straits, who have a mental condition, who are suffering from anxiety or depression, reach out and get help. Uh, if they have to show up uh, in an emergency ward or something, it, it could cost them their life if they don't. So the pressures are real. The access to healthcare professionals is not as great as it should be. Um, but we're now coming out of this pandemic. And I think we're now going to see people, as we get back to some kind of new normal, reaching out to a service, which the governments have to be uh, well aware of, um, because the impacts has been significant. And to your point, the, here's one of the stats that just jumped out at me. Convinced that they need professional mental health assistance, but can't access any services. The actual average is about 17%. This, in this demographic, it's 32%. And I've heard these stories, and I'm sure you have too, John, where people say, okay, maybe I need to talk to somebody. And you, you call, could be a psychologist, psychiatrist, whatever. Uh, they're booking like six months in a, you know, down the road. If that, if you're lucky, that, that's an early appointment. Uh, you need help now. Uh, so you may not think about having to go to, for instance, an ER for this. Uh, but, you know, when you're in a desperate circumstance like this, you, you need immediate help. And it's just not available right now in most cases. It isn't. And therefore, you have to be really in touch with your own mental health issues. Um, I, and I, I will say this openly. I've had I was born with uh, severe depression. You would never know it for me in doing in television or radio or anything else. So I've suffered not only from that for my entire life, but allowed, uh, you know, professionals to give me the right medication to get through everything that, you know, I have a great life and everything else. It doesn't impede anything that I do. But I will say this, having experienced that, and I, I do have what's called uh, dysmythia. It's a double depression. So, and again, I was born with it. I didn't ask, ask for it. But the reality is that it feels like, it feels like grief. 
people who don't have this, and it's, uh, you know, this afflicts about 17% of the population across the country. People who don't have this don't understand it. It's, it's not a sadness. If you lost a loved one and you had that grief, let's say you lost your mom or your dad and you felt that for weeks on end, that's the kind of feeling that people with depression walk through every day without help. It grips you, uh, you know, right to your soul. And, and you, you feel like the, the only way out of it is to, in fact, um, take your own life. Oftentimes, it, at that sign when you're feeling that way, when you feel what I call the grip, that depression that consumes your body in grief, it's time to walk into a hospital. It's time to get to CAMH and, and, and get Im- immediate help. And loved ones will reach out for you and to have that network. But it is a feeling that you stay with, you walk in your, your shoes. I will say this, Bill. I had this conversation with Charles Adler, who you would know um, a couple Good of years ago. Good friend of mine. Ago. Yeah, Chuck and yeah, I go back and, a long, and, long time. And, and Charles called me when, after we did this one night a year later and said that a, a guy had called him and said it had saved his life, that conversation alone on the radio. So he'd gone in right away and got help and he was fine. So there are ways to treat this, but you can see the impact now where coming out of, a, uh, out of the uh, First World War, psychologists and psychiatrists and even, even mediums all of a sudden were swamped with people who had gone through a war. We've had an embedded society for two years fighting their own war with pressures and coming out of the, uh, of the epidemic, probably within the next six months, we're going to see a huge impact on the mental health area. This is here in the data. There's, there's abs- these numbers are astounding in certain areas. So, uh, you know, first thing out of the data is you're not alone if you're a young adult and you feel this way. Number two, if it is severe, walk in and get help or talk to somebody or talk to a loved one who can at least move you in that direction. And number three, be aware of the symptoms. This is not something which you can fight on your own. You oftentimes have to have some kind of medication or professional advice on what to do. And it, it will be there. You just got to go to the hospital or to the right place to get it. As, as we've talked about in the past, I mean, suck it up is not an, an, an oh. aberration. I know anybody who says that, uh, that's that's not who you should be leaning on right now. You've got to have somebody who, who can put you in the right direction and not just be sympathetic, but, but you know, have an honest discussion about that. There are places to go. I mean, that's one of the takeaways, as, as you and Charles talked about, I'm sure. Uh, but you have to know where those are, and you have to have somebody who's going to be with you to make sure that that you do follow up on that. It's it's such an important element of this, because as you say, it's pretty easy to fall off the cliff when you get to the edge there. Let me say uh, one last thing about this. Michael Wilson, the former finance minister, his son committed suicide, and so he yeah. dedicated the back part of his life to making sure that mental health was recognized as a, a severe problem that had to be addressed. He and I joined together and, and did the first study on mental health in North America. It was the very first one. We, we actually released it at the Canadian Embassy. And it was the first time that when we hear about the one in five Canadians, which is a huge number, 17 to 23%, who suffer from some form of anxiety or depression, that's where that comes from. And that was 20 years ago. And you know what? In this data is the same amount, except it's up because of the pandemic. So it stays with us. It doesn't go away. It's like the disease itself, which it is. It needs to be addressed not only by the individual with medication, often medication, most of the time, but also just to recognize that coming out of this um, this pandemic, you will not be alone. 
you are part of a larger group now. And as a result, go and get, uh, you know, to an emergency ward or have someone take you if you feel that you're getting to that stage or pick up the line for a suicide line or depression line and see if you can get some help. But it's, uh, you know what you're right. You you can't just raise money because, you know, you think on a particular day you can, you know, send a text and it's going to put five cents in somebody's coffers to help mental health. This is serious on the ground and the, the numbers are stark and they're, they're here in this data. And, and this is a snapshot, as, as you've talked about before, when you do polling like this. Uh, and there's a, there's a time lapse between the time that you do this and, and the time that you and I will talk about this. Uh, and you look at what's going on around you. It, it's not just, you know, the, the post-COVID and we're not even into post-COVID, but we're trying to be. There's a possibility of a world war. And, the, the, you know, you look at the pictures on TV and you see apartment buildings, maybe like the one that, in which you live, are getting shelled, you know, by, by an enemy. Uh, it's, it's, it's a tough time right now. And you know, people have to be able to reach out in situations like this and know that there's going to be somebody there for them. Yeah, it's a, a disturbing world at the moment. Um, you can't make it go away, except you can turn it off. I mean, you can exactly. turn off. Uh, they, don't want, they don't want to turn off Bill Kelly. Uh, but they can turn off a whole lot of other things in their life and just, you know, change the channel. Um, the, the critical thing is never change the channel and talking about it. And uh, Bill, you know, are talking about it today and what it's like. There may be people listening. It's, uh, you know, it, it is a disease. It's a terrible circumstance. And you have to understand if you have a colleague and you don't have it, but they do, that if they have it, they, they may be walking in that grief every single day. And it's something that's a mindset that's chemically changed in their brain that they just can't, you know, do on their own until they get that help. If they confide in you, then you know what? Recognize it as something you've got to have a conversation about and be with them. But you can't wish it away. You can't tell people to buck it up. And you can't just say, you know, everybody loves you. That doesn't make the condition go away. So by all means, you know, embrace the situation and see if you can get them to a proper place where they can get some assistance. Well, and one of the stats from your survey, I think, uh, underscores that too. Uh, Very worried about the mental health of people in their own. 60% of the people in that demographic are worried about somebody in their own family, which just understand that conversation has to take place. Anecdotally, if you go across, uh, you know, your neighborhood, you're going to find uh, adults um, whose kids have been treated. I mean, it's it's not that they all are. Some have done very well at home during this whole situation, but there are others who it, it has brought the anxieties to the forefront. The pressures on them would have been there before. It's just exacerbated them. We have friends who who have wonderful kids, 13, 12, um, who who's Kids have been to Sunnybrook Hospital here in Toronto and and being actually admitted for a period of time. It's it's once you get admitted, you get into a situation where it's a controlled environment. They can settle everything down. They can find out exactly what's going on and they can treat you with the proper medication. That's what that's all about is isolating it. So everything settles down. They can see it for a week or so and then they can begin to treat it effectively. So if you walk in your neighborhood, you will hear this. And and that 60% has been evident since the second month of the pandemic, because I was polling a month before the pandemic on the, the, the coming wave. And that has been there consistently. What we're seeing here is that almost one in five, one in five Canadians has suffered severely from what's happened. And they themselves are concerned about their own family. So it's pretty pervasive. 
but we've and we've got to be conscious of it. The question is whether or not we've got the services to adequately deal with it. Well, the short answer to that is not really, uh, which means the governments are going to have to have this conversation too. And we've talked about this in the past too. That you know, they elected officials say the right things in times like this. Oh, we have to put more money and more resources into that. But we seem to have short memories, and, and the elected officials sometimes even shorter memories. Where six, eight months down the road, when they're doing that first budget, of course, and they say, "Well, you know what? We don't really need to do that. We can cut here. We can cut here because we have to keep taxes low." Uh, you know, we've got to stay on these elected officials and say this is a priority. It took, what, almost 20 years for, to convince them that, hey, the environment's a priority, and now they seem to have got that. They're usually the last ones to the table when it comes to reading public opinion. But this, we can't forget this, John. We can't let this slide and like, well, they have so many other things after we reach a crisis point. We're still in this crisis point. Yeah, and, and let's, let's also recognize, I mean, a psychiatrist doesn't cost anything, but even if you're a child psychiatrist, we don't have enough. And part of the reason is, well, the most reason is, we we don't have enough because we don't have psychiatrists who've you know gone through school and then graduated and gone and done their internship and moved on. I mean, this is not something where you just hire a bunch of people. They have to go through years of study in order to get where mm-hmm. they are. So it's very limited. We all most of us have a family doctor. Start there. I mean, you can get referred to the appropriate services. That that's fine. Psychologists do cost money. Um, so if you're lucky to have that, great. But start with your family physician if you do think you or one of the people in your family have an issue and get a referral somewhere and and, and have that discussion with them. Uh, I had intended to talk about another poll that you guys did about uh, Russian oil replacement options, which is, is a very important story and some interesting stuff. But I just we, we kind of got off in this direction, John, and uh, this well, is such an important discussion. And, and you had some, some very relevant and germane aspects to, to the conversation that I think right now people need to hear. Uh, so we'll set the oil thing aside for a little while. We'll talk about that. There's lots of time to talk about this. Uh, but this conversation, this day, uh, could be changing some person's mind and changing some people's attitude right now. And, and I think that's far more important to spend some time on it. And I really appreciate uh, your candid approach to this and, and, and your offerings to this, too. I think it's a very important conversation, and I'm glad we had it, and I hope people got something out of this. Thanks so much uh, for allowing us to talk about it. It's uh, it, it's something where people, if they have a feeling, they should reach out and, and start a- with absolutely. their family physician. Take care, Bill. Absolutely. John, stay well, and uh, we'll get to the other stuff a little bit later on, but thank you for this today. John Wright, no Executive VP of uh, Myru Public Opinion, uh, the mental health picture, which is bleak, but you got to know, as John mentioned, the takeaway here is there are people that can help. Reach out. Uh, it could be the most important decision you've made. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, I want to double back and talk about an issue that we've been trying to highlight and try to find some solutions to for the last little while as we start our economic recovery out of COVID. One of the areas uh, of the economy that seems to be really having some problems right now is what we call the hospitality industry, which in the, in the large umbrella also includes the restaurant industry. And uh, the story that uh, that many people are telling us, that many of the owners and managers of these facilities, is they can't get enough people to staff these facilities now, uh, that they seem to be opening the doors and we're back to full capacity. One of the theories is that, well, a lot of those people that maybe had la- been laid off, et cetera, have found other jobs. They've maybe, maybe gone back to school. Maybe they're taking white-collar jobs. And that may well be part of the situation, but it's not the entire situation. And there's an obvious uh, element to this that maybe we've been missing. But there was a piece in the conversation.com that I think touches on this. It said it's not just that Canadian restaurant workers have left, 
Many have yet to arrive. The author of the piece is uh, Maggie Prezima, who is a senior researcher with the Cirque Migration Program at Ryerson University, and she joins us on the Bill Kelly Show uh, to talk about this. Uh, Maggie, first of all, thank you for joining us on the program, and uh, thank you for writing the piece. Very insightful. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Bill. It's an interesting debate, an interesting discussion. It's one of these things that really, I guess, hits all of us, uh, you know, at, at home because it's, you know, it's our restaurant. It's our favorite establishment that we go to. And, and we always hear about these staffing problems that are going on. Uh, but you talk about one of the, the elements that doesn't really make it into the discussion, but it's historically a very big part of this industry, isn't it? And that's immigration. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I've been reading and keeping up with what's been going on over the course of the pandemic. And um, I was really quite surprised that when um, when things started to wind down and restaurants started to open, that nobody was talking about the fact that such a huge um, component of the of the labor in restaurants are immigrants. And um, because of closed borders and pandemic restrictions, so many of these immigrants just haven't come to Canada in and recent years. And and it's it's I'm surprised it hasn't been more of the, of the conversation because like I can say this is this is not a new phenomenon. This has been going on for years. Where uh, oftentimes these jobs in some of these facilities have been filled by people coming in here, and it's 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 it, I, as you mentioned in the piece, for many of them, it's almost like an entry level position, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, I mean, you know, you come to Canada. Um, a lot of people come with credentials from uh, different countries, but they come to Canada and a lot of their credentials are not recognized, for example. Um, so, you know, they have to go back to school, perhaps they have to get uh, take some extra courses, um, get extra accreditation. And in the meantime, the hospitality inter um, offers a, an immediate way to make money and to support their families. Um, this is also huge with international students, um, you know, Hospitality is that kind of job where um, you can learn on the job and you start making money right away, um, which is not, you know, it's, those jobs are not available in every sector. And um, we know that 11% of all new immigrants between 2011 2016 worked in the food and beverage industry. So it is very much a gateway industry for many people. And, and there's a structure there there's a, uh, in place in, within that industry, isn't it? I mean, depending on, as you mentioned, uh, the immigrants' uh, capabilities, uh, their education, uh, their qualifications for different roles. Uh, and, and we've heard stories about, you know, people that maybe are trained as engineers or, or some other profession uh, that come over here and, and maybe end up in the hospitality industry as, as a server, whatever the case might be. Uh, but they're using that time wisely, as you say, maybe to brush up on their skills uh, and maybe move on to that. But there was always a... a a pathway for people. In other words, that person would move on. Another person, probably an immigrant, would roll into that position and, and use that as an entry-level position to kind of gain entry, get a foothold, etc. So it's always been there. And and I guess it's, it's, you know, we've talked about the supply chain. I guess the supply chain of potential employees is what is maybe what's been cut off here. Yeah. So just to give you an example, um, the 2021 annual report on immigration to parliament, which is a report that um, the IRCC presents every year, um, showed that in 2019, there were about 4 million um, electronic travel authorizations and temporary visas issued. Um, and then in 2020, just for contrast, there were about 650,000. 
So you can see the deficit there was huge. And while the government's been, you know, really trying to keep up with their target immigration levels, and in 2021, we welcomed 401 new uh, permanent residents, those permanent residents were welcomed from within Canada. So those were people that were already here. So there's a huge amount of, um, you know, potential new immigrants that just haven't come. And um, I do think that the government is very much concerned. Um, we have, you know, an aging population. Uh, people are starting to work uh, later. Um, youth has been traditionally a huge um, demographic of people who's worked in the hospitality industry. They are, you know, doing more volunteer work. They're entering the labor market a little bit later. So there's all these reasons that are, you know, compounding together to, um, you know, underscore a labor shortage that was very much existing before this pandemic. Um, the labor shortage was there. And again, I refer to the you know demographics um, in the 70s and 80s, about 20% of the population was, uh, sorry, in uh, the 20% of the population that was working uh, in restaurants. Now it's only 12%. So, you know, there's a huge demographic problem there too. And, and that's, as you mentioned in the piece, not to be dismissive of some of the other parts of the conversation we're having, uh, wages, things of that nature. You know, the, the, you can't simply say, oh, don't worry about it. The, they'll open the doors again and everybody will come back and we, we don't have to raise wages. That, that has to be part of the discussion uh, because that decrease in the number that you just mentioned here is, is, is troubling. That indicates that even people who are coming here may not look at that as a, as a potential stepping stone. So you've got to do something, I guess, to, to bring that particular industry into into the 21st century, I, you know, i.e. wages, benefits, working conditions, things like that. Yeah, I think I think the restaurant industry um, as a whole has treated it as sort of temporary labor, um, yeah. which maybe for some people it is. But if you want to make the industry attractive to people as a whole, then absolutely, you know, you need to re, uh, raise wages. You need to give people permanence. You need to give them benefits. Um, you need to make it attractive and, you know, an industry that people want to work in um, because it offers a secure a future um, a room for growth. And, you know, we lump food and accommodation into um, work, but there's so much range there. You know, there's so much potential for different kinds of jobs, whether, you know, it is starting in a, you know, back of house dishwashing job, but then, you know, all through management and hotels. So there's a ton of range in the industry. People can work their way up and it does offer good um, labor opportunity. So I, I am a bit hesitant of that discourse that it's, you know, just all bad and bad wages. I don't think that's the case. Uh, but I do think it's a case that, you know, some of those things need to be rectified, that we can't treat it as just like temporary labor. It's like every other industry, though, isn't it, Maggie, when you look at it that way? Yeah, there, there are probably some bad operators. There's some very good operators who, who treat their employees well and, and do what they can for them. And it's it's called retaining. It's retention of employees. And that can be a, a big, big factor in, in, first of all, the company growing. But secondly, of course, you know, the other side of that coin is, yeah, we've heard those stories, too, of minimum wage, long hours, uh, you know, no timeouts because we're busy. Sorry, you can't do that. Oh, by the way, you have to buy a uniform to work here and you have to buy it yourself out of your paycheck. But you, even though you're making minimum wage, they have to address all of these issues. And I, I, this is probably like just about every other facet of the economy we've talked about. Uh, where a lot of the stuff that you wrote about here in, in your piece existed before the pandemic, and the pandemic really just shone a light on a lot of these problems. 
Well, that's that's exactly that's exactly um, a lot of these problems were existent. Um, I think the industry and, you know, a lot of our consumer behavior comes into play here. We want everything cheap and um, food is not cheap. It is not cheap to produce good quality food. Um, and, you know, the more people want cheap things, the more quality is sufficed. And when, you know, restaurant operators operate on pretty low um income margins and, you know, they try and squeeze everything, uh, you know, the last penny out. And it, it really often gets turned into, um, you know, scratching on labor because it is an extremely labor intensive industry. So, you know, one, one, I think stat that really makes an impression is that um, when you look at the restaurant industry for every $1 million in profit, it employs 15 people. So the next industry um, in line is retail and it employs seven people for each um, million dollars. So it just goes to show you it's it's an industry that really thrives on labor. A lot of things can't be mechanized, you know, um, but that's where, you know, uh, owners squeeze. They squeeze that labor and, and, you know, we need to be prepared as consumers to pay a little more um, so that workers can be treated properly. Yeah, and I know that dovetails into a lot of the debates that we've had over the last little while about a living wage or even raising minimum wages. And there's always seems to be some government pushback on things like that. I And I, I've mentioned on this program many times, I don't mind paying an extra five or ten cents for a cup of coffee if I know that it's going to go into the pockets of the of the person that's behind the counter there. Uh, and that only makes sense, uh, you know, because the, they have a, a, an opportunity to earn a living and they have to put food on the table for their family, too. We as consumers have to be a part of this, too. We can't, as you say, simply say, well, somebody else has to bear the burden of that. We all have to in a situation like this. That's exactly it. That's exactly it, Bill. Uh, it's a, a great piece. I direct people to go to theconversation.com and uh, check it out for yourself, and you can get the details about the whole article. It's not just the Canadian restaurant workers have left. Many have yet to arrive. And some interesting ideas there. It should be part of the discussion going forward. Uh, Maggie, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate our conversation. Thanks so much for having me, Bill. Have a great day. Take care. Maggie Prezina, of course, from uh, Ryerson University, and a, a very provocative piece that uh, I think should be part of the conversation about getting the hospitality industry back on its feet. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.